Now, before we get to that, though, we, we've got to finish out this week. And so, again, hopefully you've turned to Nehemiah 13. This is our 13th week, actually, in Nehemiah. And I hope you've found this series helpful to you. There's no doubt that Nehemiah is a book that is filled with many great insights. This book is filled with insights about being a leader, and so I hope that you've gained some practical truths and application points about being a leader because I truly believe that God wants each of us to be a leader in one way or another. I also hope that you've gained in your understanding of how God is at work in the life of his people and how God wants to still work in people's lives. Namely this, that God rebuilds lives and, and he rebuilds even the community of people. And he wants, hear me, he wants to re rebuild your life if necessary. All right, that, that's who this God is. That's who he's revealed himself to us in Nehemiah. Now, as we look at chapters 11 and 12 last week, we in essence saw what it was like when the physical work of the rebuilding of the wall was finished and what it was like after the people had experienced a revival in their midst. I mean, if you remember, there was great joy that was expressed and it was a highlight moment for the Jewish people and for all those in the city of Jerusalem. If we were to ponder things at the end of chapter 12, our summation would most likely be the work is done and all is as it should be. However, what we're going to see this week is we need a word of caution. We need to be reminded that you must stay focused, hear me, you get must stay focused or things can rapidly decline. For some here this morning, we recognize the name Nokia. In fact, Nokia was once the world's largest vendor of mobile phones and leader in the mobile phone industry. In the early 2000s, Nokia's phones were extremely popular, known for their durability and user-friendly features. However, Nikoa's decline began with the advent of smartphones, particularly the iPhone introduced by Apple in 2007. Nokia initially underestimated the impact of smartphones and was slow to respond to the changing market dynamics. While competitors like Apple and Samsung embraced touchscreen technology and the app ecosystems, Nokia stuck with its traditional Symbian operating system, which became outdated in comparison to the newer, more intuitive smartphone platforms. Nokia's market share and stock prices plummeted as consumers flocked to smartphones and other manufacturers. In fact, in 2014, Nokia's devices and services division was acquired by Microsoft, marking the end of an era for the once dominant mobile phone giant. You see, Nokia's problem really was the fact that once they reached the top, they felt their work was done. They became complacent and eventually lost their purpose of being a leader in the mobile phone industry. Now, I know that that is a business example and much went into the demise of Nikoa. However, it does serve for us as a warning that just because one is on the top doesn't mean they stay that way. In fact, if business examples doesn't do for you, think about people like Bill Cosby and Lance Armstrong, who in one moment were successful and admired and in the next moment became despised and dishonored. If not careful, things can change for us really quickly. Here in Nehemiah, the people were on top of the world in chapter 12 as things were great. But what we will see is just because you get to the top or just because things get to a good position does not mean they will naturally stay that way. In reality, most things drift to a natural decline. Let me set even a little background for you for chapter 13. At the very beginning of the book of Nehemiah, we saw where God placed on Nehemiah's heart a passion for rebuilding Jerusalem. At that point in time, Nehemiah was the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes, and he had to get permission to go to Jerusalem. 
If you remember the question that Artaxerxes had for Nehemiah when he asked permission to go was, how long will you be gone and when will you return? Now, though the scripture does not give us the privilege of exactly how Nehemiah answered that question, what we know is that Nehemiah went to Jerusalem with the expectation from the king that he would at some point return back to Susa and the presence of the king. This is important to us because when we read some of what happens, especially at the beginning of 13, Nehemiah is not in Jerusalem. And we know that because this is what we read in verse 6. It says, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. All right, see, I'm really smart. I f- see how I figured that out? All right. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. You see, Nehemiah was clearly a man of integrity, as we've seen throughout this series. And so he was a man who kept his word, and he went back to the king. I have no doubt that Nehemiah would have much rather stayed in Jerusalem to continue you know, the work there, but to be a man of integrity, he had to keep his word. The problem in this case was the old saying came true that when the cat is away, the mice will play. I know that we've all heard that saying, and you might even laugh at it, but here's a truth we all need to grasp. Our natural tendency is to drift in the wrong direction. You see, if you read the Bible, it doesn't take long to realize that as people, we have a tendency to stray. This tendency is so clear that the analogy of sheep is often used in the Bible to describe us as people. One scripture that you might be familiar with is Isaiah 53, 6 that says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. It doesn't get much more plain than that, but other places in Scripture back that up. In Zechariah, it says, therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for a lack of a shepherd. You see, in the time of Zechariah, the people were suffering from the lack of a spiritual leadership, and so they were wondering. Even Jesus understood our tendency. We know that as we read this in Matthew 9. He said when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like, look, sheep without a shepherd. God's word uses the analogy of sheep to talk about people because truly like sheep, we have this tendency to wander off the right path and into danger. Now, in our hearts, we all know that, do we not? We know that. We, we find the hard thing to do is to do right while it seems to be much easier to do what we know is wrong. It is a constant battle in our lives to do right. So it is not so much here in Nehemiah 13 that the cat was away so the mice will play as it was the shepherd was away and so the sheep went astray, right? Those are my words. So y'all keep keep that. I'll give you permission, all right? Now, what I want us to do is first look at the problem that developed in Nehemiah's absence and then we'll consider what lessons there are for us because no doubt these are words of warning to be found in what happened here. The first thing that Nehemiah found when he came back was the people became comfortable with evil in their midst. All right, let's begin reading verse 4, Nehemiah 13. Eshib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the lights, singers, and gatekeepers, and to the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Elishib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. 
And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Now, I hope you get the picture. Okay, what, what Eliashib had done was take a portion of the temple that was designated for the storage of items used in the temple and clean them out so that Tobiah had a place to stay. Now, a quick reading by some may lead you to say, well, I mean, if Tobiah needed a place to stay, may, well, maybe this was a good use of space, right? Maybe it would be better to use it that way. However, one should always be careful how God's temple is used and that it is used for its dedicated purpose. But more importantly, let's consider who Tobiah was. I hope you remember that name. Anybody remember that name, Tobiah? Y'all remember it? Anybody? Some, it's, at least somebody shake their head this way. Yeah, I remember that name, all right? Tobiah appeared several times in the first part of the book of Nehemiah, if you don't remember, but, and, and, but you should. And you remember what he was doing? He was actively opposing Nehemiah's work and even greater opposing God's work among his people. You see, Nehemiah had been adamant that Tobiah would get nowhere near Jerusalem because of his opposition to the work that God was doing. Yet Eliashib gave him a place to live, not only in the city of Jerusalem, but gave him a place in the temple of God. Let me ask you a question today. Do you invite the fox into the hen house? Hmm? Y'all got some new chickens, all right? Don't invite the fox to the, ch to the chicken coop. It, it, you don't do that, all right? Uh, do you invite the coach for next week's upcoming game to come sit in on your pregame work and your, uh, your, your practice the week before? Are y'all awake today? <laughs> all right? Do you invite the strategist from the competing company to sit on your company's board meeting? No, all right? Neither should we invite evil into our midst. Let me tell you that, right? We should never get comfortable with evil because it will destroy. In fact, I appreciate the words of James when he wrote this, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The words here in James reminds us that we should never get comfortable with evil. We should resist the devil. We don't invite him in. We don't give him a room to stay in, all right? We, 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 we resist him. And in case you don't think we, this applies to what we're reading here in Nehemiah, let's not, let's not forget this. All right, we are the temple of God. All right, we are the temple. Evil has no business in us. See, I believe in our day and time, we become too comfortable with letting things live in our lives that have no business there. We let things be in our lives that fight against the work that God wants to do in us and his people. For example, many people have let pornography have a room to stay in their home when it should be thrown out as Nehemiah threw out Tobiah. We have let the love of money have a permanent place to dwell in our lives when it should be thrown out. We have let self-centeredness take up residence when it should be kicked out. Many times we fail to see the dangers in these things that are actually evil and we need to kick them out before greater damage is done in one's life. Here in Nehemiah, the people had become comfortable with evil in their midst, and Nehemiah knew it needed to change, okay? Now, the next thing we see is this. The people failed to bring their tithe. Look back beginning at verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fleed each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouse. I told you last week that the fact that this was an agrarian society made going to the city a sacrifice. This was especially true for the Levites who were dedicated to work in the temple. By working in the temple, they could not even pursue another trade to make ends meet. 
Because their time was dedicated to serving the temple, God had made a plan for them that through the tithe of the temple, their needs would be taken care of. Because the people, though, had not tithed, guess what the Levites had to do? What did it say they had to do? Did you read it? Did you hear it? What did they have to do? It said in the text, they left the temple and they fled to the fields to work so that they could live. Do you understand the problem? In the process, God's house was neglected and the worship of God was hindered. Not only did the people fail to tithe, they then failed to observe the Sabbath. Look at verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah people trending, or treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? You see, God had established the Sabbath so that the people would have a day of rest. But let's also remember when the people observed the Sabbath rest, they were also, won't you catch this? They were also expressing their trust in God, right? They were trusting that if they rested as God had commanded, that he would provide for their needs through the overflow of the previous week. You see, by now, people know of both Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby who have went against the grain and the norm saying they believe that God can take care of them if they observe the Sabbath and close their doors on Sunday, all right? And they have proven this, that not only can you stay afloat by observing the Sabbath, you can actually excel when you trust in God as both companies have experienced tremendous success within their industry, right? You see, the people failed to observe the Sabbath because they failed to trust God. They fell into the trap of believing that if they didn't work on the Sabbath, then somehow they would suffer. And what they failed to realize is that ultimately working on the Sabbath was a thing that would help lead to their demise, not their flourishing. After this, we see the people enter into spiritually unhealthy marriages, all right? Look at verse 23. It says, in those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them, pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Now, this is one of those texts that surely never anything up, does it? Right? And some of you, maybe first time you heard it read, you went, <gasps> what did we just read, right? It's, it's even uncomfortable a little bit, right? Most likely what Nehemiah did here was this. Most likely what he did was go up to some of the male leaders of the families and pull some of the hair out of their beards. Jacob, we want to come so we can demonstrate. <laughs> I, 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 I might say in our day and time, you should probably find a different way to respond than Nehemiah did because if not, you'd get into some serious trouble However, we have, to appreciate, we have to appreciate the fact that Nehemiah took the situation seriously. He knew that if the people didn't change their way, then more serious things would happen. And so he wanted to make sure the people got the point. And I have no doubt by his reaction, they got the point, right? Probably so. Now, I do need to take a moment to explain why what was happening with the people was so bad to Nehemiah. I have to take this time first because some people misuse and abuse what is written here. It needs to be clear that what is being addressed by Nehemiah is not God being anti-racial, interracial marriage. That's not what's happening here, all right? When God forbid the Israelites from intermarrying with the other people, it was not about race. It was always about the spiritual condition of the people. 
The Jews had been forbidden to marry other people because the other nations did not worship the one true God. They worshiped false gods. In fact, if you read the scriptures, you can see where God had made a way for foreigners to enter into the faith and become a part of his people. And so the issue at hand wasn't race, all right, for God has created all races, amen? All right, he asked. When we read this text, what was happening was the people were intermarrying and having children who could not even speak the language of Judah, which meant they were not able to understand the word of God or worship God. The result of these marriages to, to false worshiping people would be a quick moving of the Jewish people away from God and a failure to live for him. In fact, Nehemiah gave Solomon as an example in verse 26 when he said, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him and he was beloved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. In other words, the false worship of these foreign women that Solomon married took him away from God, and Nehemiah knew that that danger still existed. Spiritually, the people would rapidly decline through the influence of false religions if they did not change their way. In fact, I think most people have seen this even happen in our day. When a follower of God enters into a relationship with a non-believer or a secular person, and before you know it, that person is no longer living for God. For the negative influence of a non-believer can be great. And because of this, God knew this. He forbid these foreign marriages. He did not want his people to turn from him and suffer because of it. Now, now here's what I know. I went through those last things pretty quick, did I not? I did those rapid fire. There, there's a reason I, I did that. Because here's the biggest issue with these three failures of the Jewish people. It goes back to Jacob's message a couple of weeks ago. The people had made a covenant with God. And you know what he'd made a they'd made a covenant with God about? They said, we'll tithe, we'll keep the Sabbath, and we'll not intermarry. All right, they had made that covenant. It, back in chapter nine, nine, they confessed their sin. They recognized that they understood that they were suffering due to a failure to follow God's command. And so they made a commitment to God to follow him and to follow his commands. It read this way in Nehemiah 9, 38. Because of all of this, we make, look, a firm covenant in writing on the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. In other words, they were so serious, they put their names clearly on the line and they committed to honor God in these three areas that I just mentioned. You have to understand this. To make this strong commitment that they did in chapter nine, one was entering into it with the belief that should the commitment not be kept, that God would punish them for their failure to keep it. This commitment was the reality of the life of the people, but just a few chapters later, we've just read, the people have already broken their promise to God. So do you understand why Nehemiah acts so quickly and so aggressively in addressing the people's sin? Think about this. Nehemiah had just spent time, I mean, not only rebuilding the wall, but rebuilding the people's lives, all right, because of their past failure. He didn't want the people to suffer the same fate again. He knew if they failed to worship God and follow him, that suffering would be on the horizon. You see, as any good leader would do, he was trying to warn the people and protect them. That should make sense to all of us, does it not? Does it? All right, shake your head this way. I still think you're all asleep this morning, are you? All right. Now, as we look at what's happening here in chapter 13, as we try to wrap up the book of Nehemiah, I could probably take a few approaches, but let's look at things this way, because if we think about these last words of us, to us from Nehemiah, we can discover some challenges, and so let, let me put these challenges before you this morning. So number one is this. 
to continually take an honest observation to see where you stand with God. You see, some will want to look at the book of Nehemiah even now and say, you know, those things happened a long time ago, and so they have no effect on me. However, what we have to have written here in Nehemiah was preserved for a reason. These are not just empty words. They are, these are just not interesting stories or words of history preserved. God wanted us to learn from them as we are to learn from all of the Bible. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about the experience of God's people in Moses' time, and he says this, beginning in verse 11. He says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction and whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. See, honestly, these are some important words from us, for us from Paul. They remind us that what has been written is for our good so that we don't go down the same path as those before us. We are supposed to learn from history. We need the words of Nehemiah 13 because they remind us that just because the people were restored and had a great revival doesn't mean that they cannot fall again. In fact, we are reminded that if not careful, we can quickly go back to what got us into trouble again. See, verse 12 in 1 Corinthians 10 says this, what we must do is take heed or we will fall, right? We have to be honest with ourselves and realize that we are not exempt, all right, to doing the wrong thing. We are tempted like those here in Nehemiah's day to not keep the commitments we made to God and instead go back to living for self and not God. I'm not gonna make you raise your hand this morning, but here is my guess. My guess is there are many in this room who at one time or another made a commitment to God that you didn't carry out. All right. Maybe you went to camp or you experienced a revival Maybe God spoke to you through a particular sermon or you made a commitment to God in that moment, either publicly or privately, but when the distractions of life set in, you quickly either forgot the commitment you made or you made excuses as to why you couldn't carry it out. For whatever reason, you failed to do what you had committed to God to do. I know I'm right this morning, right? When I say this room is full of people who like that, I'm included. You don't have to raise your hand again. I'll raise mine for all of us, okay? We fit in this category. Here's what we have to be careful about. I, I, I see all the time Christian people who want to be critical of what's going on in the world around us. They see the trouble in the world, the difficulties that are happening all around, and criticize what they see in ungodly people. What, I want to what, what, what we want to do is we want to blame others for the troubles in the world. Christians are quick, quick, Christ oh, I can't even talk this morning. Christians are quick, all right, to do that, okay? But here's the problem, right? We are the ones that's failing to keep our own commitments to God, right? We, we want to criticize them when we have to look at our own life and say, we're not being who God's called us to be. We've failed to keep the commitments that we made to God. In fact, think about how different the world would be if Christians did what God asked them to do. What if Christians really loved and cared for each other as God commanded? Would the world be a different place? Absolutely. We all need a reminder of where I started today, that we have this tendency to go in the wrong direction, that we must keep in check. God wanted the children of Israel, warned the children of Israel before they went into the promised land of what could happen. In fact, listen to God's word to the people through Moses. Look at what he said in Deuteronomy 8. He said, take care lest you forget the Lord your God 
but not keeping his commandments and his rules and statutes, which I commanded you today. Lest when you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and do good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Those are words we need to hear. Because let's remember, God gave us those words, but what happened to the children of Israel? They didn't heed the warning and did everything God said they would do. Paul used the words, take heed. And Moses said, take care. But the warning is the same. We need to continually take an honest in this moment. You need to continue to make sure that you are God wants you to be, right? And say, where am I? Am I where God wants me to be or not? Now, when we get to that point, it prompts the second part of our challenge, to be willing to address any issues with conviction. Here's what's clear in Nehemiah 13, all right? And Nehemiah addresses a thing that he had observed that were outside of God's will with conviction, did he not? All right, I'm gonna help you because I didn't read all these. When he discovered Tobiah in the temple, this is what we read, and came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. I was very angry. Look at this. I threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with a grain offering and frankincense. By the way, for those who know your Bible, I want you to think about this. Think about Jesus going into the temple. What did he do? He went in there and he turned over the money changers tables and he went in and he says, no, 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 my father's house will be called a house of prayer. Did he not? Let me say this. Sometimes quick, swift action is required because hear me, you do not mess with evil. You don't mess with it. When Nehemiah saw that, listen, when, when, when he saw it, he said, I'm, I'm going to take care of this right now. In fact, even when he saw they were not tithing, look at what it says. I, so I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah, look at this, brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouse. So he said, we got to get this fixed right now. When he discovered that the Sabbath was not being honored, we read this. And as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. He said, I'll make sure I'll shut the gates and I'm going to put guards at the gates. They're not coming in on the Sabbath. All right. And then we already saw what he did in regards to unspiritual marriages, right? Nehemiah did not mess around. He had conviction in addressing these issues that he discovered, and we must do the same. It's not unlike the conviction that Joshua placed before the people of Israel as they prepared to go in the promised land. This is what we read. You're probably familiar with these verses. It says, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. 
put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom we will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. What was Joshua doing? He's saying, live with conviction. Assess your life. Put away the things that are displeasing to God. Put away the false gods that we serve in our day today and put those things away and serve the Lord. He was saying, listen, you need to choose. Are you gonna live and to serve God or are you just gonna go and do your own thing? Because there's really no in-between. We should have conviction that leads us to deal with any of the sin or failure to do God's will that we discover. And when you focus and have this convention, what, what we should become the focus of your life next is this, is that all that you do be driven by a desire to please God. And let's consider why Nehemiah acted the way he did. Throughout the book, but especially here in chapter 13, we can consider, consider um, what, why Nehemiah lived the way he did. And we don't have to guess because Nehemiah says something three times here in this chapter, reminds us of why he did what he did. All right, verse 14. He says, remember me, oh my God, concerning this and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Verse 22, remember this also in my favor, oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Verse 31, remember me, oh my God, for good. Nehemiah clearly understood that it was God that needed to be pleased. Nehemiah wanted God to remember him for what he had done because he knew that God is the one that can reward us for what we have done. You know, some people might look at this and say, well, Nehemiah was being selfishly driven when he was asking God to remember him. But I believe we should view it differently. You see, more, more of the view of this is the aspect that Nehemiah understood that the only one who really mattered is God. The people may not appreciate what he does, right? Some, some of those guys that got their beard pulled out may not appreciate that, right? But what he knew is this, all right? They would not be able to remember him for good anyway. All right, people even are quicker to forget what good things we have done. Nehemiah ultimately understood it was God who could remember him for all of eternity. Okay? And it was God who needed to be pleased. Nehemiah allowed his life to be driven by a desire to please God, and so should you. You know what I think we forget sometimes? All right, I, I, that that the Lord is coming again someday. You know, in fact, what's going on in Israel right now, it's terrible, right, it's terrible. But if there is one, one benefit that might come from what's happening there in the Middle East right now is that people might gain a renewed vision that the end of time as we know it is coming. Right? That there might be this heightened awareness that Jesus is coming again someday and we need to be ready. In fact, my question for you, are you ready? You see, as we read through this wonderful book, we saw where Nehemiah went to Jerusalem to help rebuild the city and the people. Under Nehemiah's leadership, great things happened in Jerusalem, and most importantly, the lives of the people were rebuilt. However, when he left and went back to the king, things fell apart. So that when Nehemiah came back, he found things a mess. In his absence, people had failed to keep their commitments to God, and so he had to rebuke the people. In a greater sense, Jesus came himself one point to earth. He even came to Jerusalem, did he not? And here's what we know what he did. He rebuilt lives in an even greater way than Nehemiah. 
Through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, Jesus offers the forgiveness of sin and a new life to all who will put faith in him. Through Jesus' lives, no doubt, radically, we're changed when he's walking on the earth. And today, there's still change, all right, as people live for God as never before. However, we know after his resurrection, Jesus went back to the Father in heaven, all right? And he told his disciples something before he left. He said, I'm, I'm going back to my father's house, but I'm going to come again. I often quote John 14, where Jesus told his disciples he was going to prepare a place for them. And since he was preparing a place, he would come back and take them to where he was because Jesus made a promise that he was going to come back. Now, with that in mind, the ultimate question we have to ask is this, how will he find things when he returns? As we get ready to close, I want you to consider the words of Peter from 2 Peter chapter 3. This is what Peter wrote. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace." We need Peter's words because the time has went on. Many people have come to the conclusion that Jesus is not coming again. Peter reminds us that God doesn't keep time like us, right? He doesn't keep time like us. And the only reason that Jesus even hasn't returned yet is because he's patient and he wants all to come to repentance. So don't judge the fact that Jesus hasn't returned as meaning he isn't because he is coming. He will come like a thief in the night. We will not be expecting him. We really don't need to worry, in fact, about when. We need to worry about what will our lives be like when he returns. Peter asked, in light of Jesus' return in verse 11, what sort of people will you be in lives of holiness and godliness? And this is a great question for us to still ask. If Jesus came today, would he have to act like Nehemiah? Or could he say, well done, good and faithful servant? Would Jesus look at our lives and say they match the holiness and godliness that he desires or would there still be much work to do? What I hope we will do as individuals and as a community of believers is take up the challenges we consider today. My prayer is this, that you'll take an honest observation to see this morning. Where do you stand with God? Hopefully it's good. Hopefully you can look and say, I'm prayed up, I'm confessed up, I'm doing my best to, to walk with God. But if you discover there's an area where you fail to either keep a commitment or not living up to God's standards, will you be, have a conviction today to say, I'm gonna address these areas? I'm not going to keep living this way. I'm, I'm going to d deal with it. In fact, take any sin in your life serious and get rid of it. Take any unkept promise and be determined to fulfill them. Recognize any command of God that you're not following and begin to obey it today. Let today be the day you decide that you'll serve the Lord and then move forward driven by a desire to serve God above all. You see, as we approach our invitation, let me simply ask, 
if Jesus were to come before the day was over, okay, in, in, in your life, what do you wish would be different? Ask it this way. If Jesus was to come today, what, what in my life needs to be different? Because I wouldn't want to see Jesus or Jesus to see me doing this or be involved in this if Jesus was to come. What needs to be different? And my prayer would be this, that you confess that to God and say, God, I failed. Because again, remember he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive, amen? amen. Take and say, Lord, I, I confess this to you. Then draw on his strength and say, Lord, forgive me. Now give me your spirit to guide me and help me as I, because you're not gonna do it on your own, right? You need his help and say, Lord, Give me your spirit to help me in this area because, God, I want to live for you. And then commit to changing with your eyes upon Jesus, saying, Lord, you remember me. You remember me. Because when he returns, I want him to look at everyone here today and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Would you bow with me this morning? Fathers, we come. I know as we look at the end of Nehemiah, I'm thankful for the word of warning that's provided I know in a way, Father, it can seem like a little bit of a hard way to end the, the, the book, but Father, I know that we need that because the reality of our life is we drift. I confess that to you, God, that that's my natural tendency. It's easier for me to go my own way than to do what you want. So Father, my prayer today is you challenge us all with these words. And that this morning, if there's one here today that they would look at their life and say, if Jesus came today, I wouldn't want him to see me doing this or I wouldn't want to be doing this with my life. That even now as we have an invitation that they would come and bring that to you. The Father, they would confess it. Draw on your strength and get up ready to live a different life for you. So speak to our hearts. God, this morning, I, I don't know what you need to say to individuals, but God, I know today you're speaking. I'm just thankful that you're a gracious God that gives us a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, really unlimited chances when we come to you. Father, I pray today we'll take that chance and then change and just fully live for you. So bless, Father, during this invitation. Let your spirit move amongst us. And as I pray these things, I pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.